Um, a lot of things have changed since the last time I have spoken up here. A lot most recently in the past week, I'm going to share it with you. I am on a diet. I know. I know. Yeah. I've let myself go just a little bit too long. Okay? Um, I kept saying, I just had a baby. It's fine. Well, Zeb is now 10 months old, so I don't think I can get away with it too much longer. Although, I still do have my Thanksgiving in a Christmas cup, if you know what I mean. Can you hear me? Just a little bit? Should I just do this the whole time? How is this sound? No? I wouldn't translate well on the podcast. Um, anyways, pumpkin spice. I know, I'm a white girl. That's what they say. Although, I have friends who are of other color who also love pumpkin spice. Just saying. Anyways, I'm on a diet, and um, I can't get away with it too much longer. Oh, thanks. That probably helps. Thanks. I like just being a little awkward. I keep moving this stool. I keep moving my coffee. I keep moving this. I keep saying other things that don't make sense. You'll get that. It'll, it'll happen a lot tonight, so just, just to warn you right now. It's a little bit of awkwardness, but we like it that way. I like it that way. Um, anyways, the Sunday school kids, that's, there's a pick. I'm, I'm ADD, like major. Uh, Sunday school kids, they, I, I'm in charge of them in the morning, and I'm in charge of the child care at night, and they are brutally honest, let me tell you, okay? I couldn't get away with this extra 30 pounds of weight. Four months after I had Zeb, they were like, Miss Kathy, you still look pregnant. What's going on? I know. They're sweet kids. They really are. They're so honest. And so, you know, I said, well, it took nine months to make Zeb in here. I think I'm going to let my body have nine months to get back to normal. And they're, they're so gracious. They were like, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I, um, yeah, I, I, I took the last ten months shoveling food into my face any chance that I could get and now I think my grace period is over so I started a diet and I am starving I'm seriously hungry all the time all the time Lindsay those donuts sitting right in front of my face all morning and I didn't eat one it was driving me crazy I know I know you did, because I was, like, trying to live my life through you as you were eating those donuts. Uh, but, yeah, the, I really, seriously, though, um, with my health, I really kind of became complacent with it all. Um, I kept making excuses and thinking, it's fine, my back hurts. What's an extra 30 pounds on my spine? I'm fine. You know, hey... I'd rather be fat and happy than skinny and miserable, right? Pass the butter, bring it on, extra cheeseburger. I got a lot more laughs this morning. You guys are dead silent. Maybe I should just preach from the word, <laughs> just get to it. You guys, woo, tough crowd. It's hot up here, too. I'm sweating. 
I am sweating. Uh, I became really satisfied with having that extra food, so I realized that I needed to change. Um, I've got to move forward with my health. And on that note, who of you are hungry? Hmm? You hungry? You hungry? Yeah. Okay. Let's dig into some scripture then, shall we? Huh? It's appropriate. We're continuing our study of Luke, and we'll be reading out of the New International Version. If you have your Bibles, it should be easy to follow along. Ah, but there it is, up on the screen. Uh, this is the parable of the great banquet. Uh, this morning my title was Feast or Not to Feast. But we'll just dig right into it. Luke chapter 14, 12 through 24. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So going back to verse 12. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. I don't know if any of you guys have been in a situation like this. Um, if you've ever done something nice for someone to uh, get something out of it, to get something in return, or ask, well, what's in it for me? I mean, I'll be honest, I have. I do it with Aaron all the time. Aaron's my husband. He'll ask me to rub his feet, and I say, okay, I'll rub your feet. If you give me two back massages and change Zeb's diaper for a whole week. If you've seen Aaron's feet, you'd know why. Okay? They're gross. They're so gross. So I do it all the time to him. I'm sure I've done it to other people too. Um, but just being real, being candid with you guys, I've been there. I'm sure at least half of you guys have been there too. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You know, scum 
is a church that tends to draw in all sorts of people, um, including some that are on this list in verse 13. But I have to ask the question, I ask myself this, and I, and I want to ask you guys, how often do we really go out of our way to invite these people in? I think they naturally come in because of the name. I think we draw a lot of people in. But I can't say that I really go out of my way to invite people here. And I'm not trying to beat us up because I know that we do that enough on our own. Um, I'm just posing the question so we can check our hearts and our intentions. Do we really go out of our way to invite people to our church, this church? Just some food for thought. Now, Jesus, in these couple of verses, is speaking to the Pharisees. Um, specifically, I don't know if you guys remember Leonore's message a couple weeks ago, but she started in this chapter, and um, Jesus is having dinner at the Pharisees' house. It's the Sabbath, so they have this big feast, and the Pharisees invite Jesus yet again. We've re- been studying Luke all along, so we know that this has happened a couple times at least. Um, But Jesus is at the Pharisees. There could be others who are there who are not Pharisees uh, present at this dinner, but it doesn't specify. But in these couple verses, 12 through 14, Jesus is teaching the Pharisees not to be exclusive, but rather inclusive. The kingdom of God is open to everyone. Verse 14, it says, And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In this verse, we can see that it's talking about this eternal repayment in heaven. But Jesus is also saying, you will be blessed. This was really interesting. When I looked up the Greek word for blessed, um, which I forgot how it's pronounced, but I have it spelled on my paper. So just trust me. I looked it up. Uh, but the Greek word for blessed means happy, happier, or fortunate. It's the same word that's used for the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Or if I'm a real cool pastor, I'll say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God and so forth. Happier they are, more fortunate they are. And I'm not talking about just a feel-good happy. I think we get that twisted. I think we get it confused, like, oh, if I'm a Christian, that means I should be happy, that I should feel good all the time. And nowhere in Scripture does it say that you will be happy all the time. I don't know if we take one verse And we try to apply it to our whole lives and take it out of context, but you won't find that in Scripture. I mean, there are—it's challenging. Life is challenging, but it's the blessings we get to be a part of now, and the happier, more fortunate we are in the process. That's what I think Jesus is also talking about in this verse. 
Verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I actually really like this verse. Uh, This verse suggests to me that at least one of these guys here, whether it be a friend of the host, a Pharisee, a disciple of Jesus, whoever, I like to think that at least one of these guys got a little bit of what Jesus was talking about. And maybe not. I mean, obviously I wasn't there. I don't know the guy's heart. I don't know his tone of voice. He could have been real smug and arrogant saying, you know, like, yeah, I got it all together. But I think, and it's encouraging to me, so maybe that's how I'm reading it. But I think that he was a believer. And Jesus replies with a story. And we don't know if this story is based on true events, uh, but we do know that it is used by Jesus to teach us something, to teach them something. So in verses 16 and 17, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his one servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So we can gather a couple things from these verses. Uh, The obvious, that there's a banquet held by one guy, and he sends his one servant to go tell those he invited that everything is now ready. So then it was customary uh, to send out multiple invitations. It's actually still customary today. I don't know if any of you guys have been to a wedding or have gotten married yourself, but you send out the save the date. Aaron and I had a really cute save the date, by the way. I was sitting on top of this old phone booth, and I was like, hey, just called to say, save the date. And Aaron was making a phone call, and he had long hair, and we just looked like we were in a rock band. Anyways, um, I, just, I thought it was awesome. Anyways, customary to send out save the date, and then what happens after that? You get a more formal invitation, really nice, fancy. Sometimes there's a ribbon involved in some fashion format, right? And then you go to the wedding and there's an usher or there's an MC that's like, all right, guys, come party reception. It's all ready, right? So I think we can get that it was probably pretty similar back then, um, which kind of suggests actually that these people were already invited. It says they were invited. They may have already even committed to going to the banquet. They may have said, yes, we'll be there. So this would then present some integrity issues on their part, as well as, I think, complacency issues in their excuses. In verses 18 through 20, we hear their excuses. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So we got a guy, bought a field, got to try it out. Someone bought some oxen, got to try it out. Someone got married, got to try it out. Right? First of all, I don't think anyone buys a field without looking at it first. Maybe this guy did, but it's probably 
I mean, he's probably lying. He's probably just making it up as an excuse. And honestly, like, I've got to say I've been there. There are so many times I want to use Zeb as an excuse and say, like, I can't go. I have to, I have to be with Zeb. I have to. I'm a mom. You know, because then people don't argue that. They're like, oh, yeah, Zeb's sick or whatever. She's got to do that. I'm, I'm this close sometimes to using him as an excuse, you know? So I've been there. The guy bought the yoke of oxen. He's got to try them out. Again, no one buys oxen. It was perfect this morning. This morning we had Amy and Jim Croft here, and they uh, own horses. And so I asked them, what do you do in the process of purchasing these horses? Do you just buy them and say, all right, hope this one's good. And she was like, no, you try it out first. You ride it. You make sure that, you know, the horse is fine and it's not going to, like, kick you in the face or a small child. You know, things like that, appropriate things to do a little research before you buy something like a horse or oxen. So, again, this person could be just lying, making an excuse, Um, and just got married. I mean, how often do we all try to make up an excuse. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing to be married. I, I don't think Jesus is saying in this parable that any of these things are negative. Um, but it's, it's the heart behind it. It's the complacency. It's the, they think they're fine. They're good to go. They, they don't need a banquet. Who cares how grand this banquet is? They're set. And here's where I think Jesus is teaching a lesson to us, guys. This is, the, this is the nugget, okay? You might hear me say the word complacency 20 times tonight, okay? But this is where I think there's a lesson for us, us as individuals and us as the church. The church meaning all of us, the larger body. But, of course, we read it and think, how can we apply it to us here at SCUM? Several weeks ago, Craig Blomberg talked about our seats being empty, specifically in the night service, that our numbers have gone down. And, I mean, you notice. You notice the empty seats. And though I think he had a valid observation and a valid point, I'd like to talk a little more of why we even fill these seats to begin with. These people are making excuses in this passage, and they're no different than me becoming complacent with my health. It's no different than us becoming complacent in our relationships, and it's no different than us becoming complacent in our relationship with God. I think that if we think we're set and there's no room for growth individually, Complacent meaning like, I'm fine, I'm good to go. If we're complacent in our relationship with God individually, I mean, how, how do we expect anyone to expand the kingdom of God? There's going to be complacency there too. So, I mean, filling the seats is pointless. If you're, if you're not totally like hungering and thirsting, for God, then it's pointless. And honestly, if you are, 
hungering and thirsting for God, there's no room for complacency. Matthew 5, 6 again says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. After the invited make their excuses, the one servant goes back to the master and fills him in. The master orders him to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then the servant comes back and not only says, I've done what you ordered, but he says, there's still room. In verses 21 and 22. This is really awesome to me. I keep pointing out the fact that there is one servant who does all of this. Which is re- really interesting because... I would think that this master having this big old grand banquet, at least that's how I pictured in my mind, that he would have, you know, some power and authority to send out more than one servant. Uh, And if I were that servant, I would have complained about not having more help. I've, I've done it at work. I've done it here in the church. You know, when I'm doing something by myself, solo, I mean, it's so frustrating. And I I won't do it. You know, sometimes I'm like, if it's just me, I'm not going to do it. I think others of us have done that too. And and I think that there's some boundaries we can have, you know. If we're the only person doing something all the time, then, I mean, how how are other people going to be a part of that and receive the blessing? You'll keep being the only person doing it all the time, and you'll get burnt out. But I'm really just talking about the heart behind it. This servant, he doesn't complain. And he's not complacent either, like the ones who made the excuses. If the servant were complacent, he would have not said, I invited who you told me to invite, but there's still room, right? He would have said, I did what you said, cool, peace out, going to take my break now, right? He, do, he doesn't say that. He says there's still room. And he's like in for more work. He's like setting himself up for more work. Crazy. Crazy dude. I did a little research on complacency in today's church. And I came across a blog by Dr. James Emery White, who is a senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He wrote, there are five marks of complacency. Of course, nobody thinks they're complacent. You know, I don't think any of us think that. But, if you will, allow me to go through them still, and we'll see how relevant it is to us, individually and us as a church. So I'm just going to read through it. These are his words, not mine. Um, Just to provoke some thought and really some checking of your heart. Um, I have it up behind me. I'm going to read from a little paper. First sign of complacency. One, far too easily satisfied. When you are complacent, you are easily satisfied with incremental growth and minor achievements. Such things can be heralded as big wins and seen as an affirmation of effectiveness. 
but it rings hollow when they are marginal at best. If your big win of the year was new carpet in the vestibule, I don't know what that is. I said it this morning, I still don't know what a vestibule is. Uh, but anyways, let's say the purple room, okay? If your big win was new carpet in the purple room, then your big win was carpet. Sorry, but that's not much of a kingdom hill. His words, not mine. Number two, if you are quick to make excuses, when you are complacent, you are quick to offer all kinds of reasons about why you are not growing, why you cannot do anything new, why that wouldn't work, why, 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 you get the point. Challenges are allowed to become obstacles, obstacles are allowed to become barriers, and barriers are allowed to become excuses. It is all too easy to hide out behind such excuses as a reason for your acceptance of the status quo. Number three, maybe it's never enough time. When you are complacent, there is the veneer of activity and busyness, but it is seldom strategic. Yet the facade of meaningful activity becomes the means by which to excuse what could and should be done. More often than not, your 40 or more hours per week are spent doing what you enjoy and what gives you the most strokes, but not necessarily what advances the church most strategically. But since time is being filled, it is easy to dismiss using it in other ways. You tell yourself there simply isn't enough of it. Then you keep spending it the ways you always have and being where you've always been which, if you're complacent, is perfectly fine. Number four, if you're complacent, you're no longer teachable. When you're complacent, you resist being pushed or challenged. In fact, you denounce such pushes or challenges, usually in the name of some superior-sounding reason tied to trivial theology or denominational distinctive. Even worse is when you reject new ideas based on your supposed experience or knowledge as a seasoned leader or even individual here. Translation, pride. Number five, you may be content with early success. The final mark of complacency is when you have had a measure of success and it is providing to be enough. Perhaps you are a church plant and you finally break the 200 barrier or buy land, or build a building. Maybe it's when you finally go multi-staff, multi-service, or multi-site. You can reach a certain level of success that pretty much fleshes out your initial vision. What then? More may be on the line than you have realized. You've stopped dreaming, which means you've stopped pushing. Maybe you're dealing with a little season of complacency right now, maybe not. But if you think you are individually, or if you think this church is struggling with this, then I urge you to pray about it. To seek the Lord and others in leadership here, because it can be just a season. Complacency can be broken, and it cannot. 
It can be, people live their whole lives like that. Being just satisfied with where they're at. And I'm not talking about content with God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're fine on your own. You don't need anyone else. You don't need God. You can do it on your own. You can do this by yourself. There's still two more verses in this passage, so I want to go through them. In verse 23, the master sends the servant out even further to get more people. 23, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. As if this grand banquet wasn't enticing enough, and at this point in my life, this week, if any of you said, hey, there's food, I'm in, like that fast. You don't have to entice me. You don't have to hog tie me. I'm there, right? But I'm going to give these people the benefit of the doubt that they needed to be compelled. It's interesting, the word compel is the same Greek word for constrain or persuade. So this servant is going out. Constrain would be interesting. That would mean he, he really would have to hogtie them and bring them back. I don't think he had to do that, but maybe he did. I'm thinking it's more the word for persuading them. And we'll cut them a break. I mean, maybe this was a really long walk, and they had to think about it before making this journey. So maybe they really did need to be persuaded. Or maybe they needed to be hogtied and dragged. Could you imagine being this servant, though? I mean, the pressure, right? The master, you've already... You've already went out and invited all these people. You come back. There's still room. Master sends you out again, even further. And you've got to bring. You got to fill this house. What if he didn't come back with anybody? How embarrassing. He'd have to resign from his position. You know, he'd have to say, I'm, I can't do this. I can't show my face. I'm not, I didn't bring a single person. But seriously, think about it today as Christians. I'm not saying we have to be Bible-thumping Christians because we've been there, whether you've been the thumper or the thumpy. It's not fun. But what I'm saying is how often do we try to persuade people for the sake of the gospel? And hear me, it's not me that draws people in. It's all Jesus. It is not on us if people show up or not. But you know Jonah, right? Jonah, belly of the whale. Even Jonah was sent to the Ninevites to deliver this message from God. And he did a terrible job. If you know the story, he didn't... He got swallowed by a fish, okay? And then after that, he went to go tell him this message, and God kind of changed the script on him and said, no, you don't have to give them this, like, wrath message. I'm going to turn their hearts for me. And Jonah's like, what? I went through all this, and I don't even get to yell at these people? I mean, it 
was God who started and finished that gig. He turned their hearts towards him. But what I am saying is when someone says, nah, I'm not into Jesus, do I respond with a, okay, that's fine, and leave it at that? Or do I engage with them and ask them another question and really find out why they're not into Jesus? I do it a lot. It's just interesting, you know, to think about. In verse 24, the last verse of this parable, of this story, it says, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. This verse by itself sounds really heavy. If you're used to church culture or um, know the lingo, it could sound really heavy. And I'm sure it sounds heavy to the Pharisees because I think they know Jesus is talking to them. So there's this obvious truth that we can take from this verse that if we do not choose Jesus, then we miss out on eternity with him. And that's real. You guys have heard he's the only way, the truth, and the life. I think you guys all have heard that or at least know that in your hearts. But I think about this verse, what it means now. I can think about the eternal, you know, perspective. I've got that. In fact, I can be so focused on the eternal that I'm not focused or present here. And I miss out on a lot. But what about today on this side of heaven? I think with this verse, what a bummer not to partake, not to eat the food that God has for us now, the spiritual food, the blessings that he has for us now. There are so many that we get to be a part of. And some things are challenging Life is challenging. I had two of my vehicles today break down. Two. I only have two. I only have two vehicles. But they both broke down. I just bought one of them like a month ago. I bought the other one like three months ago. And I'm just like, okay, God, I know there's a purpose in this. And as I'm coming around the corner, thankfully... It was not far down the street. Ran out of gas. I see Thomas. I'm going to share this, Thomas, because it really blessed my heart. I come around the corner, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm not going to ask for help. I'm, you know, I'm just going to go to the church, see if there's a gas can in the bike shop. Oh, crap, I don't have a key for the bike shop. How am I going to get a gas can? I hope someone has a gas can. Who carries gas cans with them? You know? I mean, maybe a lot of people do. Not me today. But I was going through all this in my head and on the verge of, like, kind of freaking out. But I was just like, okay, God, I trust your provision for me. I trust that there is a blessing in this. And I come around the corner, and I see Thomas. And he says, hey, what's up? How's it going? And I'm like, well, 
and it kind of took me a while. I was like, I wasn't going to say it. And then it just came out. I'm like, I think I ran out of gas and I'm, you know, a few blocks away. I walked here and, um, and he didn't even know if he had a gas can, which is so funny, Thomas, because your trunk is like pristine. It's like so clean. It was like the only thing that was in your trunk was that gas can. So he checks his trunk and there's this gas can. And he walks me over to 7-Eleven and he fills it up for me. And he opens the door for me. And then he drives me back to my truck. And he fills up the gas tank for me. You know, I'm, I may be crusty, but I'm a lady. You know, I don't like doing that stuff. I don't. I don't. And I was dreading having to do all of this stuff. And it's simple. Tom's like, I got it. No worries. You know? And then he shared with me that he was praying before I came, that God would give him an opportunity to help someone out, to bless someone, because he missed an opportunity earlier, and he was asking God for another opportunity. And I'm just like, that's so awesome. No matter how our prayers sound to us, I mean, God hears them, and he cares and there was a blessing in it for Thomas, and there was a blessing in it for me. There's so much that we can be a part of. So many different ways that we can connect with one another and with God today. When we do meals at SCUM like we're going to do tonight, we don't do it just to feed you. And I mean, I'm hungry, so I want that food, you know? But that's not why we're here. It's so that we can walk alongside of each other in this. Get to know each other just a little bit more. Because we're not meant to do it alone. When we serve together by cleaning up, doing meals and Bible studies, that's another way that we can connect with each other and with God. You can connect with God through prayer, his word, his creation, and relationship with other believers. Even if you feel you're doing great right now in your life and that you this message isn't for you, well, this message is for you. Don't become complacent. God has so much in store for us right now. And this is only the beginning. We have so much more. I love you guys a lot. I'm really glad that I'm a part of this community. And it's challenging at times. It's not always a feel-good. But I'm thankful, and God is faithful, to remind me of how much he loves me through all of you.